We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Looking ahead at the 2022 offseason, that's what we're going to talk about today. On Steely Pants, I'm Ben Gretsch. Find my Twitter at Yosemar Gretsch. You can find my Substack at bengretsch.substack.com. Going to be doing a post here soon. Took January off. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all his great work at Rotovis. He's going to be doing a fantastic look ahead post, different potential running back rooms going, you know going into the 2022 season that he does every offseason. It's a fantastic piece. Very excited for it. We'll be talking about that a little bit more in the coming weeks after he's actually written it up. But Sean, today we're going to talk a little bit about an early draft you're doing with Blair, some early 2022 ADP, maybe some talk, some looser talk on the 2022 offseason where some some players might shift and how some things might go. We're talking before the show about Aaron Rodgers and where he might land and some of that kind of stuff. How are you doing? Good, good. It's fun to to be doing a draft with Blair, as always. Obviously, you and I will do a lot of drafts this offseason. And we made a big trade in our Dynasty League. We'll get into that. Talk about uh, who we gave up, who we got back, if we have gotten a little bit lucky. It was a, a very good balanced trade. I think one of these trades that is very good for both teams. We talk a lot about making it a win-win. You know, Don't be the dynasty participants who will only make trades when you get like all the best players in the trade and everyone else in your league feels like they need to protest make it a win-win for both teams i think we did that and then we might have gotten a little bit lucky in terms of the head coaches who were hired onto the teams where we had some players coming to our roster so if we have time we'll chat a little bit about that but then yes we are getting into early best ball draft season Blair and I drafting in the never too early best ball tournament, trying to uh, sneak up one more spot than we finished last time around. And we were gifted a very exciting start here. We got the 101. Obviously, you and I were dying for the 101 in our drafts last fall. And then we were lucky we didn't get that because obviously Christian McCaffrey missed most of the season, whereas we had a lot of Jonathan Taylor where we did pick. Then you and I have talked before about how Taylor is not the clear 101. And yet that's where Blair and I went in part because we would like to have a little bit of Taylor. 
and you may not be able to get him anywhere else. So even if you have Cooper Cup number one, if you have Christian McCaffrey number one, if you have Travis Kelsey number one, you know, if you're kind of gutsy and are very confident that Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams will land in the same spot, and I think the odds are good that they will, you could have Devontae Adams at the 101, but you can get those guys a little bit later in the first round. And so we went ahead and got some Taylor shares right off the bat. Yeah, and I think that's great. I did a draft last night as well, which was my first draft with the, the ship chasing guys, our buddies Pete Overzet and Pat Corain. And uh, we also got the one-on-one and we took Taylor as well. I think, you know, for basically all the reasons you said, but I, I did say in the show, like I'm, I'm going to be advocating for Christian McCaffrey at some point this offseason. You, you've sent me the, the first six rounds of, of your draft with Blair excited to kind of talk through how things went there. McCaffrey did go two in your draft. In ours, he went four, and Derrick Henry went two. In yours, Derrick Henry went all the way at 10, which I think is a better fit. One of the things I said on the show last night was I can't imagine taking Derrick Henry over Christian McCaffrey at this point. I mean, that is a half-point PPR site, but one that um, for me was baffling. I, the, the Christian McCaffrey stuff, I mean, I, I think all the reasons to draft Taylor one are are pretty well known, and we have actually talked on the show recently about you know, some of the reasons to maybe be a little bit concerned with the receiving and this and that. Obviously, you don't want to be – you don't want to, you know, miss the forest for the trees with Taylor with the little nuances to his profile. The, the, the forest is that he's an incredible player, and the team showed us all year that he's going to be their feature player. He looked a lot like the new Derrick Henry. There's not a lot of reason to – I mean, at least in terms of, like, he's their whole offense. He's going to be their whole offense. Any script, they started playing him on every down. Um, there's no reason to be completely off of him. And he was very good as a receiver again as well. That was like one of the main concerns is that his receiving volume wasn't great. But, I mean, I think there's also a lot of reason to expect that he could still take that receiving leap, as you mentioned the last time we talked about him. But the, the thing with McCaffrey is just if this guy's healthy for me, it's so hard to imagine that he's not in the top, you know, five running backs, basically. He's already shown us full season 30-point PPR 30-point-per-game PPR scoring ability. He's shown us similar in partial seasons. Last year, he was lower in his partial season, obviously banged up, obviously been banged up both of the last two years. I understand why there are people who don't want to trust the health. There's people that have said, what if he's not a 100% snap guy anymore? My thing with McCaffrey is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if his team is worse. It doesn't really matter if he's a 75% or an 80% snap guy, which, by the way, would still be probably in the top five or seven or ten of, of all running backs because there's not a ton of running backs that are much higher than 75%. I can't see Christian McCaffrey being a 50% running back, uh, you know, snap share guy. So even if he comes down from the hundred percent, he's still going to be one of the most heavily active players in terms of overall team snaps. But the part that doesn't matter is the, like the team success and all of that, like, could that crush him? It, you know, like it'll, it'll certainly hurt him in, in terms of scoring potential and all of that touchdowns uh, specifically, but the reason I say it doesn't matter is he's such a good receiver. Like this guy actually has wide receiver skills. We were just talking a little before the show, looking at the stealing signals tool at Rotoviz and how good his yards per out run was, his targets per out run. I mean, it's elite. It's elite. And for a guy who you know doesn't even get a lot of air yards, his yards per out run are up there with some of the best receivers in the game ahead of all of them, except uh, Cooper Cup and, and Deshaun Jackson on a small sample. I mean, he had a higher yards per out run than, than Debo, who was the next highest receiver 
uh, Devontae Adams, all of those guys. I mean, now McCaffrey only ran right around 100 routes. So, you know, he was banged up as well. But um, the reason he's so productive as a receiver is he's actually used like that. And he's been used like that under this coaching staff. He gets used to run these sort of combo routes at linebackers, comes out of the backfield and basically runs like a Wes Welker in-out combination route where he can win in one-on-one coverage. And it's basically like the first look on the play and it's going to get targeted because he wins on those routes. And so you can compare him to some other backs that have had a tough time in some bad offensive situations like a Saquon Barkley or something. Barkley, incredibly good player. We'll be talking about him a little bit later in the show, I'm sure. But to me, Barkley's receiving is completely different. It was more dump-offs and things with, with Eli Manning. He's not Christian McCaffrey. And no one is. Christian McCaffrey is like Marshall Falk. I, you know, I, I, I just I don't have this major concern that McCaffrey – will fall well below like 20 points per game. Even if things get really bad for him, I think he's a 20 points per game back, which, you know, if that's the floor, the healthy floor, I mean, I'm, and the ceiling is astronomical, then I, I want to talk about him at one-on-one. Yeah, and then we get to the 103. We got Austin Eckler. We've talked a little bit about both the strengths and weaknesses in his profile and I put him in my breakdown of the first four rounds. I went through, tried to do big picture for each round, looking at the best pick in each round, the controversial pick in each round, and then obviously my own pick. And for me, the, the controversial pick I think here in the first round is taking Austin Eckler, who actually comes in ninth in expected points at the running back position if you go through week 17 if you go and add in the week 18 comes in a little bit better but either way and we were talking about a guy who has expected points in the 17 and a half range and that means to get you where you need to be he's got to have this you know four four and a half points above expectation kind of season and he has to do it mostly there as a receiver he for several years now has been the most explosive receiver in the game we wouldn't necessarily expect those things to go away something that's kind of interesting when you look at the second round and you look at nick chubb going there is that he's down at 13 expected points per game and so even when you add on the two and a half above expectation you're in this 15 and a half 16 point per game range it's hard to see how he can really best that by too much and so you're taking someone with this scoring ceiling based on sort of any realistic workload that doesn't quite work. And that's after you factored in the person being a big time talent. Now you and I talk about talent and how important that is all of the time. And I am willing to reach a little bit for some guys that I think just have this scenario where they could blow away their expected points, right? And we really are talking about scenarios. There's never a guarantee that even a good player is going to be able to do that. You can have teammate situations. You can have offensive line injuries. You can have a quarterback situation and or injury. We know that when you're working with these backup quarterbacks, it can be a lot harder for the team to score. They don't deliver you to the goal line, all of those types of things. So even for a great talent, you know that there are a lot of risks with Eckler, we're really talking about him being drafted on these ceiling-based scenarios. The flip side of that is someone like Najee Harris, who comes in with this close to EP double-double, right? 10.5 rushing EP, 8.5 receiving. Now, those numbers went down as the season progressed, and we also have a little bit more of an open-ended situation with Harris here, we don't know who the QB is, and we do know that there are a lot of these situations in which veteran quarterbacks who maybe are no longer 
at their peak with the arm strength, but really know how to you know, go through their projections and check down quickly if it's not there. And if they don't have the arm strength to make those passes, that kind of thing can benefit people who play with a Phillip Rivers or a Ben Roethlisberger. You know, next year's quarterback may be able to take more advantage of Deontay Johnson, may be able to get the ball downfield to Chase Claypool. It looks like Pat Fryermuth will come out next year and be a big force at tight end. So there's some risk there, but there's also the risk that's associated with him not being a breakaway run type of guy. So those are some interesting picks in the first round. And Harris goes there at the 108. I don't necessarily think that's controversial. He probably is a decent pick there. But De Devontae Adams goes one pick after Tyreek Hill goes at the 111. Then maybe break down for me the this stretch where we don't have running backs. The first round, a little bit more balanced so far in 2022. We have Justin Jefferson at four, Travis Kelsey at five, Cooper Cup at six, Jamar Chase at seven. Those are interesting numbers, just kind of looking at where these receivers were this year. We've talked about Cooper Cup and how he's sort of the new Antonio Brown, 25 and a half points per game, right? So we look at Devontae Adams down there, just under 21, Justin Jefferson, just under 20, Jamar Chase at 18. And normally with Chase, we would ex be expecting this big second year leap. And I think that he will play better, but he also may face more defensive attention and he may face it within the context of the team having some other options. Do you, do you like taking Chase here when we know that T Higgins and Tyler Boyd are definitely going to create some kind of a ceiling on his target share? Now, last season, when we're not talking about you know, T Higgins in round three, like he is here currently, obviously not talking about Jamar Chase in round one. The fact that these guys were going to split targets for me was still fine because there's upside at those prices. We know that injuries create a scenario where you have huge upside, but now these prices are a lot more difficult. They are. And I mean, before getting too much into the player takes, and I will say like, I, I mean, I think these guys are all first round picks, but I think there's important context on, on, on what, you know, what this is. This is a, a best ball draft in, you know, started in late January and, and, and into early February. And I think, you know, your point about Eckler being close to a ceiling is a really good one. The, the thing that I always try to do when I'm drafting at this point is consider which players I think, I mean, I'm going to be drafting all summer, you know, which players I think have room to be taken even higher than where they're going as we progress later into the summer, essentially try to project forward what ADP will look like in, in August. And I do think like, for example, Jonathan Taylor will still be the one-on-one probably, but you know, you mentioned Jefferson going four and cup going six. I think it's more likely that cup is the one-on-one or excuse me, the wide receiver one. And you mentioned chase at seven is a big one. I have a hard time seeing chase going substantially higher than that, especially as you kind of consider the way that the off season works and types of research that will be done and things. One of the big points that's going to be used against chase is that he was too efficient, basically um, that he finished where he finished. You mentioned 18 points per game while also being incredibly efficient. Now we know that's a very good thing from Blair's work on, on rookie receivers that that's going to lead to more opportunity typically, but there is, you know, legitimate concern for some efficiency regression. And so he's going to have to add volume to offset that. These types of receivers typically do. That's why he's still worth a first-round pick. I just don't see a lot of scenarios, though, where the industry agrees that Jamar Chase is a top-five pick, basically, at any point. 
or maybe not at any point. That, that might not be fair. It, it could be the case that he is a top five pick for a stretch in the spring. But by August, I don't I don't expect that you'll feel like in your February drafts where you got Chase at seven, that that was like some type of amazing value. Not doesn't necessarily make it a horrible pick, but I, I do think it, in that context as well, when you're talking about what I think of this pick and those types of things. I mean, I, I think when I'm drafting at this point, I'm trying to build teams that I can look back on and be like, man, I got some incredible values because there's going to be some misses in there too. There's going to be some players that are drafted, you know, on these teams that wind up getting blocked, potentially wind up getting hurt in the off season, obviously is, is a big one. It's a long year. There's a lot that's unknown and you can mitigate that risk by drafting the right types of players early in the off season. But the biggest thing is, how do we target guys that could gain value? I mean, I think step one is the easy answer is, is target rookies as you start to get into the fifth, sixth, seventh round, the top rookies, even into like the 10th, 11th, 12th round, you know, have the road of his rookie guide out and start taking some of those, you know, impressive sleeper rookies that once they get drafted and everything, and we get into August, a lot of those guys are going to be going higher. That's just a trend that we've seen every single year and you're going to get value on rookies right now. But, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that's sort of how I'm thinking. I, I don't know. What do you think about Chase at seven right now? It, it feels optimistic to me. And that's coming from a perspective where I think that he, you know, may be the best combination of wide receiver prospect and rookie wide receiver that we've ever seen. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I, I took Julio Jones at the 102 when he was in entering his second season. Now, that was in a different. ADP context with different players available at running back. So it's obviously apples and oranges. And yet Julio Jones wasn't that caliber of prospect. He didn't have that type of rookie season. And yet you could easily see where he was going and why, you know, you would want to be ahead of the game as opposed to behind the game, you know, with that trajectory. And so, I mean, I've done it in the past with inferior players. When we're looking at Jefferson Cup, when you're looking at Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill, I think it's a little bit tricky. Now, I would take him ahead of Austin Eckler, but within the context of where they are there, I mean, I like this first round. I do think that he probably is someone you're just you're hoping to get in that back third of the first round in order to really give you the upside that you want there. But I mean, the flip side of that is that if you are in a draft where he goes early, you're going to have a shot in all likelihood at Devonte Adams or Tyreek Hill, and maybe then be able to come back and pair one of those players with Debo Samuel who went at the 207 here. So you have some options. But one of the interesting things, and you talked about how these drafts are going to progress, it was really just about a month ago where I was suggesting that I thought the first round would be pretty running back heavy again, in part because of the fear of getting locked out of these guys. And so maybe the the two most interesting picks for me in the early going are Cam Akers at 203 and Javante Williams at 205. We've mentioned Williams as a potential option as early as, you know, the fourth or fifth overall pick. Are we going to see these those two guys? And, and DeAndre Swift is sandwiched in between them. Obviously, the situation in the Detroit a little bit squirrelier probably. Are we going to see them climb? Now, in this particular draft, the four participants who went with Justin Jefferson, Travis Kelsey, Cooper Cup, and Jamar Chase, they were sort of locked out of this top 
tier of running backs as it came back through in the second round. I don't know that they necessarily are concerned about that because the players they got instead were Mark Andrews, Debo Samuel, Kyle Pitts, and then the final one there, Nick Chubb, and that's an okay selection. But I mean, if you can start with a wide receiver and then come back with Andrews, Samuel, and Pitts, for a lot of drafters, you're going to be pretty excited to have done that. For some drafters, you're going to feel like, hey, well, I didn't get one of these running backs and I do want to have an anchor. I don't feel comfortable with the values of other guys there. And when it comes back to me in the third round, players like Saquon Barkley and Antonio Gibson will be gone. So I have to factor that into my calculation as well. How do you see that dynamic playing out as we go over these next couple of months? Yeah, I mean, Williams is the first one that popped out to me. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on him as well, because we have talked about him. And, and you, I think at one point, were saying that he might be worth the one or two. I think people are concerned about Melvin Gordon coming back. But that... It's sort of artificial. I mean, I, I I mean I don't I don't mean to say that doesn't matter, but we know that projections get looked at too heavily. Running back workloads don't necessarily matter as much as people think. Gordon was very good this year. If Gordon's back and that's gonna make Javante Williams a mid second round pick, I'm gonna want to take Javante Williams. I mean, that's just sort of the long and short of it. And then in the scenario where Gordon is potentially not back, which maybe feels less likely right now. But I, I think to your question of whether Javante goes in the second round, I mean, or, or could rise. I mean, I, I think certainly at that point he would rise and he would be in, in the top 10 picks. And so he, he seemed like one that stuck out to me is, yeah, I want to get exposure in the middle of the second round. And even if Gordon coming back potentially means that he's a later second round pick, you know, at, at points in the summer, which could happen. You know, we saw stuff like that happen even with like Jonathan Taylor. I would still be fine with that mid-second round valuation on Williams. It's a little bit of a sliding scale, right? Because I still think he would be worth a mid-second round pick, even with Gordon on the roster, based on the way that things can progress during the 2022 season, not just week one, 2022, just because of the running back, what we know about the running back position, essentially. And I would just want to take even more Javante Williams in the late second, uh, or even in the third, or wherever he could potentially fall. I'm not saying it's not possible that he could fall, but I think it would be an irrational reaction by the market to Melvin Gordon, who shouldn't be uh, as big of an impact onto Williams ADP as he would probably wind up being, or I'm, I'm assuming he might, might wind up being just by the fact that Williams is already going at 205 at this point. Yeah. I think that's a little bit, uh, a little bit irrational in, in the early going that, that he's going this late, essentially he's going behind some older backs you know, Joe Mixon, look, that offense looks fantastic. Mixon has been solid, um, had his best year from a touchdown perspective and all those things. He's going behind Alvin Kamara. Alvin Kamara obviously could be a superstar again. These guys are getting up there, and when you start to see running backs kind of hitting the back end of their career, there's a lot more risk that is added. I'm not saying you can't draft Joe Mixon or Alvin Kamara, but I would take Williams before those guys. And those guys are going – in this draft, they went 201, 202. And so I think as we progress as well into the offseason, that's the kind of guy that I could see rise. You mentioned Kyle Pitts. This is tight end premium. Kyle Pitts goes with the 208, it looks like. Pitts is another guy that to me, I mean, in my draft last night, he went in the third round, is a clear, this guy's going to rise. uh, Or he's definitely not going to fall. Because, when you again, you look at the way that he scored his points and you look at what's going to happen over the offseason – People are going to, and I've talked about this since the early going of the, of the 2021 season where he was already being so productive before his 21st birthday. He turned 21. 
during the season. This guy was incredibly young, plays wide receiver essentially, but we get the tight end denomination. He scored one touchdown all season, but he had a thousand yard season as a 20 and 21 year old, you know, 20 turning 21 in season tight end. What was playing wide receiver, but you don't see that. You don't see the thousand yard season. And, and it's funny, like you talk about Chase, we saw Chase. Chase's explosiveness more readily apparent. We saw him make some fantastic plays throughout the season. We didn't actually see that from Pitts. It was a really quiet thousand-yard season where it felt like we saw less of what Pitts could become. That's fine. That's not a knock. This guy was 21 years old playing in the NFL. The fact that he was able to produce at the level he was at the age that he was speaks well to what he can become. And additionally, again, just going back to the way that projections and things, people are going to reference his one touchdown all offseason and say, there's no way he can have one touchdown on more than 100 targets again. He's going to positively regress. He's going to score at least four or five. I think with his athleticism and the work that you guys have done on, on freak score over the years, Sean, you've always emphasized to me, guys that look and run that are as big and as fast as Kyle Pitts typically have a, a chance to have above average touchdown rates. This is the kind of guy that um, – people are going to want to take by August. And so, yeah, Travis Kelsey's still very good. Yeah, Mark Andrews is still very good. I don't know where he might land in in, in relation to those guys, but in tight end premium leagues, he's not going to be a late, you know, or, or mid-second mid round, mid round pick, I don't think. Or he's certainly not going to be later than that. I don't think he's a guy you're going to be able to get in the third round or things like that. So those are uh, a couple of players. You mentioned that I'm looking at, and I'm saying even in the early rounds, you can you can see where – the value is fine, and I can also see scenarios where these guys are first-round picks in a few months. Do you think it's something where he pushes up to like the 112? The guys that I would be a little concerned that might actually fall, although you know, early on, drafters are definitely looking for that safety and that security and that familiarity, at least certain drafters are. And so you say, well, Dalvin Cook and Alvin Kamara at the 1-2 turn, that's already a big fall when we know the caliber of athletes that they are. And yet at the same time, there are so many questions about those teams as well. And that creates an issue, I think, for those players, definitely for Kamara, possibly for Cook. Joe Mixon, you mentioned, it, he, I mean, he's going to fall. But you have Pitts potentially sliding up, moving those guys down. But also if we have Williams and Akers moving up, I guess I don't see Najee Harris, Derek Henry, Devontae Adams, Tyree Kill moving into the second round. Although with Hill, you know, possibly it is. The interesting thing here at tight end is that you do have Kelsey going early. You have Mark Andrews in at, at the 206. And you kind of go through and think about, you know, sort of why that is. Mark Andrews, and you know, not surprisingly, with his monster finish to the season, does end up as the number one tight end this past year, scores 20 and a half points in the tight end premium. Travis Kelsey, 19 and a half. And both of those guys, I think part of the reason they're going to go there along with just the scoring and everything tracks scoring, right? And, you know, every time that you know you get further away from scoring, you know, you, you tend to actually get in some situations where you can make some mistakes, you get trapped. But they're also going back to offenses that are going to score a lot of points and that have quarterbacks that are dynamic. Now, the situation in Baltimore could be, you know, are they back to the run-heavy team or even, you know, halfway in between? Does that neutralize Andrews? But when we look at the sort of quarterback upside and safety and compare it to the uncertainty that we have in Atlanta, you know, how much does that factor in? 
I mean, it's, it's definitely a boost for Andrews, and Andrews' season was phenomenal. We, I, I don't want to discount him too much, but he's a guy that's going to be tough for me to take in the early offseason, particularly because of what you said about the passing game in Baltimore, because I don't think we learned anything new about Andrews. We knew he was really good. I mean, the 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 breakout season, he had, I wasn't really on him this year, but I think we've talked on the show a little bit that basically the season he just had is is why I was really, really heavily on him for 2020. Uh, talking a ton about his targets per out run, talking about his routes and how they could, all he really needed to do was add routes with, um, in that offseason, Hayden Hurst had left and gone to Atlanta. And, and both, I mean, a big part of my argument was both of those guys spent a lot of time in the slot. Nick Boyle was their other sort of main tight end, and he, he didn't do a lot in the slot. And so I thought, okay, well, Hayden Hurst is gone. This fact that Andrews only runs like 350, 400 routes a year when the league leaders are up in the 600 range, maybe freeing up some of those slot snaps would make it so that Andrews and for the, this is again for the 2020 season could get up and in, into that elevated routes range, because from a talent perspective, we knew what his ceiling would be. We knew what his ceiling would be from a targets per route run from the efficiency after he earns the target. This guy has been very good since day one. He's Kittle esque in that way. And yet it, it didn't happen in 2020, right? In 2021 Boyle actually got hurt. They really didn't have much else. And they went so passive. He is the key part of it, right? With the running back injuries and the way that their season played out. Um, even Lamar Jackson missing some time. They had other mobile quarterbacks playing, but not guys that are as dynamic as Lamar Jackson. And Lamar Jackson's just a different player in terms of how he's going to uh, influence like the number of pass attempts per drop back and those types of things. It, it could continue to be a, a pass-heavy offense in Baltimore. I don't want to lean too much on team situation and, and avoid player skill, but certainly these are the ones where I get a little bit skeptical where we are drafting the player, sort of like what you're talking about with Eckler and some other guys. We're drafting the player near the ceiling of what their skill is, and we're expecting the situation to be perfect for them. For Andrews last year, the way that everything played out, the way that their pass volume rose so much and his routes rate uh, you know, as a percentage rose and so his, his routes did just absolutely skyrocket. We already knew, again, if he could run that many routes, that he could be very good. We didn't learn a lot new about, about his talent. And so the question is, will will Baltimore's offense look the exact same next year? I think that's a tough bet to make when you have to draft him basically near that ceiling. Uh, maybe not at that ceiling. He was a tight end one. Maybe if you were expecting him to be the exact same, he would be a first-round pick and said he's a second-round pick. But – I'm not sure that I love him there. I mean, Pitts versus Andrews is a really interesting discussion in the early going. I think it's also sort of tough to, to project Pitts to just be better than Andrews when we just saw Andrews be fantastic. But Andrews is one that I would say I'm not necessarily chomping at the bit to, to be drafting in the early going right now. Yeah, it's tricky there because you do have to pay a lot to get your elite tight end. On the other hand, and this is something that came into play for us as we were drafting at the two, three turn, if you want to get that elite tight end and you know, this past season, again, emphasize just how clear cut it is. We had the 11 out of 12. We're in that final 12 with Mark Andrews. The one team that didn't was our buddy, Mike Leone, and he had George Kittle. Blair and I took Kittle at the 301. Waller went at the 303 and Hawkinson at the 308. After those guys, you know, the tier break is so massive that I don't think there's another tight end who should really be drafted before the seven, eight round range. And so if you miss, then 
then you know, you're going to have to build your team in a different way, in a way that hasn't been super successful. Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be successful this year, right? Every year is going to be a little bit different. You know, Noah Fant, if he gets Aaron Rodgers, could come out and put up a huge number of points. Obviously, you have some other guys like Dalton Schultz and Dawson Knox who are interesting at the second level. But still, I mean, you prefer to have those guys as your tight end too. Then when we come back, we'll look at rounds three and four. We'll break down our dynasty trade and send you into the weekend with lots more football to think about. Hello there, Colin Kelly here, co-host of the Road of His Overtime podcast. I just want to take a moment to let you know as a loyal Road of His podcast listener, you can save yourself 10% off a Road of His NFL pass. All you have to do is head on over to rotaviz.com, add the subscription to your basket, and add the promo code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. That'll get you 10% off, it'll get you access to all of our content and tools, and of course, set you up for success in all your 2022 fantasy football rosters. That code is RVRADIO2022. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So then we had the the good fortune of drafting at the 101. And then I think the other element that I think was interesting with our Kyle Pitts discussion is that I do actually have him as a tier break. So after that, I think we're dropping down. We have Nick Chubb, Stefan Diggs, and Saquon Barkley as the next three picks. Man, it, it's it feels weird and, and hard and unfortunate to say that Diggs is below that tier break. Hopefully he bounces back. And again, Diggs had a good season. He's a very justifiable second round pick, but maybe not a second round pick you're quite as excited about as the people in the first half there. And then Barkley, someone we'll be actually be talking about in a moment, but he was gone. He would have been an interesting one to pair with Jonathan Taylor. The other player who would have been interesting to pair with Jonathan Taylor there, if you're going to start running back, running back would have been Antonio Gibson, who at this point last year was a trendy guy at the one, two turn. I think his situation, for me, he actually consolidated some of what he did as a rookie, and I would expect the Washington offense to be better. And so I could see him as almost this guy we're getting a full round value on. 
But we didn't want to have two running backs in part because we knew we needed to take a tight end. And so the other two guys we were looking at were A.J. Brown and C.D. Lamb. Then we've kind of gone over the situation with Lamb, what the strengths and weaknesses are there. We know that with A.J. Brown, you're dealing with a guy who is going to be the target hog, even with Julio Jones. And yet at the same time, that offense in many games will be run heavy. We saw him blow up in their loss to the Bengals. So that game, uh, along with that 49ers game recently, really illustrated the upside, but he's been inconsistent. Uh, But I'm going to guess that your favorite wide receiver is someone that you will give at least a mild stamp of approval to there at the 212. Oh, absolutely. Mild. I I think should be jumping for joy. Um, Yeah, no, his season didn't go exactly the way that we would hope, but I mean, it's just a buying opportunity. (laughs) But no, I think Diggs is actually a really interesting one at the 210. I'm concerned about Diggs. Uh, Maybe I'm a little bit snake bitten because I had a lot of him and was very, very excited about him. But I think, you know, going into last season, I was talking about him. You you just mentioned earlier in the show, Cooper Cup being in the Antonio Brown mold potentially over multiple years. It's uh, you know, listeners from last summer will know I was kind of talking about Diggs similarly that I felt like he was in this perfect spot now to go on a, on a multi-year run uh, of, of strong production. The fact that we didn't see it this year to me is fairly troubling. It's like there's sort of one of two ways things could go. He was still very good, you, as you always point out when we when we discuss him. But the fact that he kind of came down a little bit. Now we're talking about a guy who has, uh, you know, is up there a little bit in age, not not old by any means, just turned 28, but up there a little bit and has the one elite season and otherwise has been very, very good. And so to me, just looks like a late second round pick, like you said. And, and actually completely agree with you on the tier break. When you said, you know, could Pitts get into the, to the back of the first round again in the first half of the show and mention some of those other names? Like, no, I, I don't think he's going to get ahead of like a Tyreek Hill necessarily. It's just that he, I think, will be more, you know, considered more a part of that upper tier, which you're already saying he sort of is, that stretches into the second round, you know, that tier of, of prime prime picks. And then, yeah, you get to Chubb, you get to Diggs. I, I do think they're behind that tier break. I, I completely agree with you there. And it, just to kind of wrap things with Diggs as well, I mean, he came back in 2021 and was number two in the NFL and air yards per game. And so we know he's still getting open. He's still drawing the targets. He just wasn't, he didn't have two or three of those really big plays that would have put a punctuation mark on the season and given us the confidence that he come back and do, you know, the things that he did in 2020 still a good pick there. As we move along, how do you see this third round? We have Lamb comes off of the 204, Mike Evans 205. And so then we actually have a round here where only one running back, and I think, again, we can attribute a lot of that to your running back dead zone. We have three tight ends and then a lot of receivers. Metcalf at the 306, Keenan Allen 307, T. Higgins 309, Jalen Waddell, DeAndre Hopkins, Calvin Ridley. Really the guy who maybe jumps out – in some ways in that I, I mean, I'm hopeful that he comes back. It seems like, you know, it's maybe leaning a little bit in that direction, but he didn't have a wide receiver one game last year before he took some time off and much more than digs. He was someone where you felt 
like it was going to be a big, big step back. Now, when he comes off of the 312, I think, again, we're, we're looking at a tier break kind of right before him. Uh, you know, the next three guys are Deontay Johnson, Chris Godwin, and DJ Moore. Godwin, obviously, the injury. DJ Moore, someone who has the fantastic peripherals but is going to have a hard time converting as long as that offense and quarterback play is as bad as it is. Do you have a receiver who jumps out there as a, as a must draft? Yeah, Ridley's really interesting. Um, I, I'm going to give a lot of thought to sort of where, where I place him. We talked about him a little bit in our draft last night. And there's certainly, you know, it feels like a wide range. There's there's stuff we don't know off the field. Um, but I, I do think there's certainly reason to believe that he could get right back to being a very high-level player as well. And so if that scenario plays out, if he is traded, people have talked about the Patriots as a destination. Maybe that's not a great fit. Maybe it turns out to be a great fit. Who knows? But I, I do think there's a potential for him to get back to being a very high-level player. We know that the the underlying skills, at least until this year, have been very strong. The, the ability to earn targets on all those things have been very strong. Jalen Waddell jumps out to me a little bit in the late third. Just a phenomenal rookie season. Huge target numbers, huge reception numbers. Some uncertainty about that offense and, and that team as well. But uh, it sounds like they're going to be bringing in Mike McDaniel or they already named Mike McDaniel as their new head coach. And there was already some talk that, like, he's certainly not Debo Samuel, but the ways that they used Debo Samuel in San Francisco, that they'll try to carry some of that over and, and use Jalen Waddle similarly. He's not, again, going to be able to be the same type of, you know, productive as Debo Samuel is a different player. But – I like that offensive system and what it could mean for, for Waddle and, and just the ability to draw targets at a high rate right away as a rookie, the production, the big plays weren't there, but we know this guy is a blazing, you know, a blazing fast receiver. He's a guy, you know, if receptions are not going to be an issue for him with his type of explosiveness and now potentially a much better offensive system, I, I want exposure to in the third round. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because he was the guy I picked as the best pick in this round over his last eight appearances as a rookie. Nine targets per game, really getting up there. 17 and a half fantasy points. Now, you can't necessarily just put another big bounce on top of that, but I mean, he's doing 17 and a half points a game within the context of you know those things you just mentioned, right? It's not a great situation. It could be a much better one next year. And we've already seen what he can do when things are not all aligned for him. So maybe there'll be some more target competition. They could have some better receivers around him with Fuller and Parker not being very healthy. That opens things up to get those nine targets per game. And yet 100% agree. That one looks very good there. Round four actually comes back and we do start to get these running backs. And it's interesting because a couple of these guys, I don't know, I, round four to me is sort of a, a a running back bonanza in this particular draft you have aaron jones at the 401 david montgomery 402 clyde edwards alaire 406 jk dobbins 409 and josh jacobs 411 montgomery and jacobs drafted in this range last season they go out and actually have ep numbers in that 16 point per game range and so you're getting in the fourth round expected point totals that are in that same range with guys like joe mixon and antonio gibson 
uh, you know, even Dalvin Cook with some of the things that happened to him. Now he's got some in-game injuries, but you're talking about that type of and range. Well so, above Nick Chubb. You mentioned right. in the 12th. Right. I mean, like three points per game higher than Chubb, well above Saquon Barkley. I mean, this is almost to the price level where even if you don't believe in their talent, and that's one thing that you know we have been telling drafters over the first multiple years that they were in the NFL is like, don't shy away from these guys, but also don't expect them to be, you know, David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell. I mean, certainly don't expect them to be, uh, you know, Todd Gurley, Christian McCaffrey, that kind of guy. But once you're at this price, I mean, these are not terrible players. They're very solid NFL starting running backs, and you're getting a great value. And then J.K. Dobbins at the 409. I mean, I can understand why he falls there. There, Even for me personally, there would always be guys where you're like, maybe I like that person a little better. But Dobbins in round four, it's like, why did you draft a running back before this point? Just, just stick there. I mean, that looks like, even though it's a very different path to scoring the points, this to me looks like DeAndre Swift a year ago, where it's just like, the combination of youth talent and what the path is to score at the level that you're paying is just so easy. Yeah. I mean, I think the sort of the promise I want to make to the listeners is being whatever, not the road, the, the running back dead zone guy or whatever, but being, being someone who wrote about that in, in 2019, I'm definitely not going to just keep telling you that the running back dead zone is going to be the same forever. And, and you can never take a running back in these ranges because trap, you know, the, the market evolves, drafts evolve. The What we're looking at is different now than what we were looking at in the past uh, to, to come up with a lot of that original data. The running back dead zone was great for 2020, or excuse me, 2019 drafts. When I first wrote about it, it was great for 2020 drafts. It was very widely discussed last year in 2021 and still, I think, very effective to understand the nuances to it i i and then this year played out sort of even more so that it's going to become a year where or there's going to be a time where we have to at least be open to the possibility that you know running backs might become the, the picks that we want to take at a certain point in in these fourth fifth rounds because some of these are they're not picks that i want a lot of exposure to i'm not again super excited about taking dave montgomery or josh jacobs especially when you're talking about best ball drafts, you're talking about early off season. There's a lot of running backs that it's uh, it's a little bit tougher in the later rounds to, to play. I mean, there's some smart ways you can do it, but it can be challenging, especially as you get sort of to this maybe later dead zone. I, I mean, maybe it's, it's shifting a little bit, getting to the sixth round, getting to the seventh round. Those are the, you know, the guys that I don't probably trust their workloads, but Montgomery, Jacobs, Dobbins, those are guys like we've, Aaron Jones, I feel pretty good that those guys are going to have solid EP numbers next year, right? I mean, do you feel similarly, Sean? Yeah, it's interesting because Aaron Jones is a tricky one for me because I absolutely love his talent, but also like the talent for A.J. Dillon. And we did see how Dillon is going to take some of those high-value touches. You have Aaron Jones down at just over 13 EP a game. Now, a little bit of that has to do with some in-game injury elements but he's going to be in that you know 14 point per game range and then just uh, you know similar to Eckler I mean he is someone we would expect to outperform he had the two plus you know additional fantasy points over expectation the question here and I think the real difference between people who said okay well I'm comfortable taking him 
even though Dylan is there last year versus what it looks like right now, you're just thinking, and even you think, go back to the uh, playoffs that just transpired and you and I played Jones in the FFPC playoff contest and, and got lucky that that worked out well for us. Uh, but you know, Aaron Rodgers throws him a bunch of passes and he looks amazing in space. Will they get that same thing with Jordan Love and then, or, or you know, whoever ends up being the quarterback? But it, I would strongly be leaning toward one of those two guys. I think they'll be the players. And so you can definitely see the impact of quarterback play, expected efficiency, and likely points for the team itself as we're evaluating some of these guys who are in committees. We've talked about how committees can shake out in a way that is good for the secondary player. And a lot of zero running back is predicated on that. At the same time, for some of these top guys, if you get a little bit of a discount and their committee mate gets hurt, then suddenly they jump up to a top three or four overall guy and it can work for the starter as well. But in most of those cases where we're looking for it to work for the starter, we're looking for it to be an explosive offense and everything with the Packers is a question mark at this point. Yeah, that's a fair point about Jones, certainly. But I do think it's interesting. I, I was just doing some counting. Oh, I guess it's right here on the graphic. But Jones was RB15, Montgomery 16, uh, CEH was RB17, Dobbins 18, Jacobs 19. Traditionally, you wouldn't have the running back 15 to the running back 19 taken in the fourth round. And you mentioned there was only one taken in the third round in this draft. You mentioned that in the first round, there was only six taken. Uh, there was only six take, uh, seven taken in the second round, a few more in the second round, but then also, yeah, only one in the third round. That's how you get to the point where the 15th running back doesn't go until the 401. That's not usually how we see drafts play out. And so I, I again, with the dead zone point, I just want to be clear that it's not a hard and fast rule. It's not a, uh, thing where you can't take a running back in the fourth round in any situation because if you do get into draft scenarios where a running back that should or typically might go in the late second is now going in the fourth then he's not that doesn't make him a dead zone running back right like that just means that your draft is going very receiver heavy now in some cases that might mean you still want to be targeting receivers because you want to lean into it a little bit because you can get boxed out of receiver quicker and that's more of a problem Again, I'm not advocating for being all in on running backs. I just want to say we do have to be flexible about some of these rules and some of these things and some of these guidelines. Don't chase base, basically yesterday's trends is the main the main takeaway there. And we're starting to hear people talk a little bit more about actually having an anchor running back team when they've taken one guy and that one guy is just in the third or fourth round which again, just gives you a sense of the evolution because a couple of years ago, you wouldn't be able to look at a guy you drafted in the third or fourth round and feel like that guy is going to be an anchor for your team. You're thinking, you know, I can cover some points here. I'm going to take some risk, but we are now seeing some of those guys in that range, which again, the flexibility that some drafters are going to show to take advantage of these new trends and to have sort of your modified zero RB or even your, if you want to say anchor running back team with that running back, not coming in the first two rounds, but having the profile you need to get you across to maybe your next running back in round 10 or round 11. Uh, it's a fun way to draft. And I, I love this because when you are more limited in terms of how you can get to the structure you want, then it makes the draft, you know, not as fun and it makes it quite a bit more boring to have multiple ways to get to your structure and to have some options to do different positions in some of these rounds i love it i'm really excited about 22 drafts for this season ben we've got a few minutes left here and we wanted to mention 
a dynasty trade. We've been working to try and move a couple of guys off of the lineup, uh, try and add maybe at the running back position and continue to shift our assets in such a way that we can maximize the total amount of value. We had three wide receivers that we really liked in Odell Beckham, Michael Thomas, and Juju Smith-Schuster, guys who have been superstars in the past. We've seen Beckham play pretty well in the postseason. So I think you've got to be optimistic about what he could do next year. Michael Thomas, and we just don't even really know what he's going to be like coming back from this injury because he has hardly played since the injury started. He could be the same guy or he could be a complete shell of himself. We have a massive range there. And then, you know, to an extent, we had that same thing with Juju. Is his decline and these really short routes, you know, they're almost not even possession routes. They're just, you know, long handoffs from Ben Roethlisberger will that shift with a new quarterback in Pittsburgh or will Juju go to a team like the Kansas City Chiefs where maybe he was used in a more dynamic fashion Juju also young enough to where he really has a lot of career ahead of him if his legs are okay right so we have wide ranges for them like to have them on our team drafted them because we believe in them but at the same time if we could move them and get younger and address some of their needs we were open to that we ended up having a match with a team that had Saquon Barkley. And that's a situation where even though Barkley is going a lot earlier in say redraft and those wide receivers where his situation, again, very much up in the air, you know, is it going to go back to what he was early or is it going to be what he's been the last couple of years? Then we were also able to pick up Hunter Renfro. We moved a 2022 third round pick that we have now and got a 2023 second round pick. So moving some of those picks into the future to try and balance that out. I like this trade because we wanted a running back. Our league mate needed some wide receivers that had the upside to, if they hit, to really change how his lineup works. And that's one of the things he mentioned as we were talking about the trade is they weren't necessarily expecting all of these guys to hit. But if one or two of them does, it will really change their outlook. I love this trade. I think it worked out for both teams. Now, one of the things that again, to kind of get your take on the overall trade, but also with the hires with the Giants and with the Raiders that happened shortly after the trade, did we get a little bit lucky here? I mean, are you more excited about Barkley and Renfro now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the McDaniels hires got to be pretty bullish for, for Renfro. I mean, it's such a sort of a cliche to just look back at Walker and Edelman and all that, but um I mean, I can't tell you how many times on Twitter I saw last year people talking about Belichick scheming to get Hunter Renfro to New England. I mean, um, the way that he played this year and the ways that he was successful, the ways that he runs his, you know, his combination routes, his triple and quadruple juke routes that were highlighted so much on on uh, so many different shows this year, um, is so reminiscent of the ways that the Patriots used Welker and Edelman. Um, it's not just because they're all white, but <laughs> it, it doesn't hurt. Um, at least the comparison, the mental comparison, right? Uh, but McDaniel's landing with Renfro, I mean, you have to imagine he has something in place there, something, some type of a plan in place there. And so, yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't hurt that. We made this trade right before that hiring became official. After it became official, I'm like, yeah, okay, this is good. <laughs> this is good for Hunter Renfro. Absolutely, we got a little bit lucky there. And then, yeah, I, I, similarly, Saquon Barkley, you would like to see 
the Giants bring in a good offensive mind. You would like to see them bring in someone that might be able to understand how to utilize his strengths. I think one of the big things with what Dable did, you can look at the Bills and say they didn't really utilize the running backs a ton, this, that, the other thing. True, but what the Bills have done very well is build around the strength of their players. I think that was always Belichick's strength over his long uh, career with the Patriots. I think that's the way you have to play uh, or, or coach or, or manage a roster in the NFL is to understand that a lot of different types of players get there in a lot of different types of ways and not be sort of you know dependent on one scheme to work. There are guys who can do that uh, and go out and find players that fit that. I mean, the best example, the, most, the one that pops right into my head is, is San Francisco, where you know Kyle Shanahan was able to bring in a lot of different types of running backs that can that can run in his system, and then also get a player like Debo, and then also a player like Ayuk, who have so much yak ability. He already had um, Kittle there, I think, when he landed there. But these guys that have so much after the catchability that are going to be so perfect for what they want to do, you can do it that way. I think the quickest and easiest way to, to find success is to be a coach who's willing to look at the roster, look at where the talent is, and understand a lot of different types of schemes and what can we do to maximize this player. Um, and that's what the Bills did so well and have done so well over the last few years building around Josh Allen. I don't know that you should or anyone should expect able to do things exactly the same with the Giants. I don't expect that. I look at what he did with the Bills as a positive in terms of his innovative offensive mind. And then I look at him landing with the Giants as a positive for Saquon because Saquon is a very talented player. Um, certainly the injury history and all those things a little bit more concerning. I'm not as bullish on him as I was in the, the first half of this show on McCaffrey strictly because McCaffrey because the receiving is so important for the running back position. McCaffrey has very unique skills there. That's what is this trump card for me with McCaffrey. Barkley, very good as a receiver, at least in terms of receptions, and he's shown a lot of the talent. He can make these one-handed catches and things. If you're watching it live, you know, he kind of sort of passes the eye test as a, a guy who has ball skills. Uh, clearly, when he's healthy, has explosiveness, You know, has all, all the size and speed combination you could want and, and the agility and all of that. But more importantly, now we have a coach in there that that ideally would be able to say, look, this guy's an incredible athlete and we need to find ways to get him in space and, and do a better job of allowing him to, to use that athleticism to create explosive plays. And I think for me, with the Bills, it was frustrating that it took so long for them to really get onto Singletary and to commit to him in a way where they seem to realize the positive things he was doing for them. At the same time, the Bills are not a team that were going to give their running backs a lot of low value touches. And I think that that's the, the only fear I would have with Barkley is that this could have played out in such a way where a coaching staff came in that just wanted to run him into the line on first and second down. And, you know, the, He's going to have to be so good to overcome that kind of thing that you know you would lose a ton of value right there. The Dable and the Bills, I mean, they understand how you need to call plays to avoid third downs, to score a lot of points, all of those things that we were talking about on Tuesday's show, and that should benefit the players, right? So in addition to using them in this in the ways that fit their skill sets the best and taking advantage of the players' talents. Just the fact that you're going to have an offense that is more oriented in the direction of 
scoring points, avoiding third downs. And one of those things is you don't give your running backs low value touches, which that means then for me, that if you have Saquon Barkley, you're going to give him some high value touches, right? And so even though he's definitely not the same level of receiver that Christian McCaffrey is, I think we can expect something that's a little bit more similar to the rookie year. And I think the rookie year is something that is gone. It was a a one-time thing where we do see from time to time that these guys come in as just immense physical talents and their teams rely on them to the extent that the Giants relied on Barkley and you have this massive year. It's possible to see something like that again, but I think the main thing here is that the floor has gotten so much higher with this hiring and you know, the nightmare scenarios, I think you no longer have to worry about as much. I mean, clearly the nightmare scenario is just another, you know, maybe fluke injury. It does, you know, you look at what happened with Barkley there and he's coming back from that serious knee injury and actually looks very good in weeks three and four. And then now we just don't know because he stepped on a foot. It was literally almost a basketball type injury that he suffers there to the ankle wipes out his season. And so he gets another year older and we don't really know where he is, but just the giants being more effective. And we talk about the EP numbers. He had average six and a half expected points as a receiver. I mean, he has to average nine, right? He has to average nine to be what we want for fantasy, but also for the Giants to be any good. And you always want that your incentives as a fantasy participant to be along the same lines as the reality team, especially if you have a good coach who's going to realize that. So I love it for this perspective. You know, it, it seems like things could be pointing up a little bit for the Giants. At the same time, it, you know, it, it's not an easy fix. They have quarterback issues. They have overall team talent issues. Those don't just immediately go away when you hire a quality coach. Absolutely. And the, it, like you said, there is some, some risk and concern. The really bad outcomes, I, I completely agree with the way you put all of that, frankly, but the really bad outcomes don't feel um, as likely. And, and so there's some positive there, but at the same time, there is some risk that, you know, some of what, stable and the bills were able to do is just because of josh allen and the giants don't have josh allen right and so that's that's an issue i mean it certainly can be helpful when you have josh allen could bail you out sometimes when you're in a third and short that you can just run a quarterback sweep and get the first down or, or what have you the, the way that he can extend plays and all those things it's a lot more challenging when you don't have really probably either the passing or the certainly the rushing ability of, of josh allen and so that could limit them and they could still be poor but uh, yeah, I mean, I think you made great points there about the understanding of the early down passing and all of that. I mean, I think it's it's sort of illogical that we want our running backs to not be getting carries on early downs, but that's the, that's the way it is. the The reason Joe Mixon had his best year is because he wasn't in that situation anymore. I mean, he had some of his best games when they were actually pass heavy, and then he kind of gets brought along. He's catching some passes. He's able to run off of the pass, the effective pass is taking more defensive attention. He's getting to run against lighter boxes and those types of things. And he's getting, importantly, way more opportunities to score touchdowns, which this was his first double-digit touchdown season. He winds up with a really strong year. I think by by um, you know no small coincidence to the fact that this passing game was so effective this year in Cincinnati. Well, I'm excited for the, the pieces we got. I am also rooting for the pieces that we gave up in all of these situations. I'm always rooting for the guys that have traded away to perform well. We want the trade to work out for our league mate. We want him to feel good about trading with us this time and trading with us again. As many of these trades as work out for both sides, it really makes it easier to get more deals done in the future, which you want to make as many 
dynasty trades as possible. Even if you lose some, that's going to build the best team over the long term. Ben, you and I also discussed a little bit off the air that we had some fun rookie selections in our best ball drafts. We'll get to more of that in the near future. But it was exciting for me having just been involved with the Rotoviz rookie guide. And I think that if you're looking to take advantage of that guide, not just in Dynasty, but in some of these best ball formats, there are some opportunities. I was surprised at some of the rookie values in these best ball drafts and once you get past some of these tier breaks you get out of the high leverage rounds you get out of the sort of the clear-cut picks knowing that you have some rookies who are going to be more expensive in the future even if you miss at least you're getting a good deal and so that part of it i think is pretty enjoyable go and check out the rookie guide there wrote also has a discount to a site subscription as part of the package so you end up more or less getting that free if you're going to subscribe to rotoviz ben mentioned that he's going to have some cool content coming up going to look at targets per route run and some other things to get you ready for your best ball draft so make sure you're subscribed to stealing signals i am sean siegel with me as always is ben gretch whom you can follow at yards per gretch if you can, leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. We always appreciate that. Subscribe to the feed. We'll have a little bit of a different tempo over the next couple of months. We released a show early this week because we were excited to talk about the games. That won't be the last time that we do that. Uh, if you're looking to subscribe to Rotoviz, we do have the new coupon code RVRADIO2022. That'll give you a 10% discount at checkout. And until we see you guys again, have a great weekend.